My name is Glenn Grubb. I am the International Director of Aviation Safety for JARS Incorporated. And I tell you that right off the bat so you don't mistake me for a preacher, okay? I do a lot of teaching. However, it's in the area of safety management system, root cause analysis, uh, components, uh, error detection, human factors, and things like that. But occasionally, I am forced into a position to preach. I wish I were a, good, a better preacher, uh, but I'm just going to say right now, you get what you get today, okay? <clears throat> but uh, Charlene and I have been with Wycliffe for 35 years, I think it is now, right? Yeah, she's none. And uh, I show it, she does not. Um, it's been hard on me. I used to be a young man with uh, darker hair and a smaller waistline, and uh, whereas my wife is still beautiful, I have taken the brunt of the ministry and absorbed it. So, um, But uh, I'm here today to talk to you not about aviation, because aviation is not per se a ministry. No church is going to say, we want to pay an airplane pilot to go fly around in the sky. There has to be an ultimate reason why someone is going to use an airplane. And that ultimate reason, if it's to be tied to the church, should be the spread of the gospel. Not to show off technology, not to maintain an aircraft, not to fly an aircraft, even though flying in an airplane does promote a lot of prayer with some people. Uh, That's not the goal we're after. Um, And the goal that JARS has had historically is to promote Bible translation. Now, Bible translation is where you go to a group of people that do not have a Bible in a language that they can read. We send in a translator who learns that language and that culture. They take, in many cases, that language and reduce it to a written form because these people might not have ever had a written language before. We teach them to read and write their own language. Then we translate the Bible into their language so that they can read and write the Word of of God in a a language that speaks to their heart. If I were to stand up right now and begin to preach to you in Indonesian, it would have no effect on you regardless of the message. If I were to say, You're all going, okay, big fat hairy deal. But if I were to do it in English and say, There's a fire, and we better get out of here. Now suddenly that translates very clearly to you because I use a language that speaks to your heart, not one that just bounces off your ears. So that's what Bible translation is all about. And I want to take it a bit further than just the the mechanics or the science of linguistics. I want to tell you today just how important Bible translation is to the spread of the gospel. That's, that's my comfort stick. I have to have that so I feel good. Um, so I'll refer to it occasionally. But uh, I have three goals for you today. Um, I am sorry, but the glasses I have are no, no longer doing what they should. So if I look over my glasses like an old man, it's because I am an old man. But uh, three goals I have today. One is to exp- express to you the importance of Bible translation in the spread of the gospel. Uh, The second goal is to show you in a very practical way what your participation in our ministry has profited, not only you, but the kingdom. And the third thing is I want to encourage you to continue on this path. So we want to begin with John 19.30 and 
John 19.30, we have, uh, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was at that moment that Christ passed away on the cross uh, in the, uh, the completion of paying the price for, for our sins. However, if we look at that, the definition of being finished, and we try to understand a little bit more, when we say someone is finished, we mean to bring a, a task or an event to an end. It stops. Now, the closest thing we have to it is we say someone has retired. Now, what does it mean when someone retires? They no longer do the work they did. In Papua New Guinea, when a missionary left the field, uh, they, would, they had the language, their national language was uh, pigeon. And they would say, oh, he has gone finish, which means he has completed his work. He's no longer coming back. And so we would think about Christ when he says it is finished. We would think that is it. He is done. He's, he's going into retirement. If, if you don't know the flow of scripture, if you are new to the story, you would think he's done. And to encourage that thought even further, if you go down to Hebrews 10, 11, uh, it says that, that Christ sits at the right hand of the father. And unlike the priest who who did not have a chair when they ministered before God in the temple. They had no place to sit down, signifying that their, their rest was never going to come because they were always having to pay a sacrifice for the sins of the people. In Hebrews, it tells us that Christ, once he paid his sacrifice, he sat down, meaning he really was done. And again, you could think, well, so is that retirement? But... We have to remember what our children know. Uh, how many people have studied the children's catechism? This is going to be a test. What is question 138? You don't know it by the number? Well, neither do I. But uh, it says, it asks the question, where is Christ? He is in heaven interceding for us. That word interceding is, is very important. It means someone who is intervening on our behalf. Uh, the closest thing we have to talk about it is someone who's a mediator. And to better understand how Bible translation fits into the flow of the gospel in many parts of the world, they're without scripture, we need to look very closely at, at what a mediator does. Now, some of you might mediate things. Lawyers sometimes do that. There are professional mediators and counseling and, and other areas. But the, the idea of a mediator is someone who stands between two parties that are having a difference. And as we know, if it says that Christ intercedes, if he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father and he's interceding for us, then that says there are two parts to this, this equation. One of them is God and the other one is us. And why is he there in between us is because there is a, a problem. Do you remember what the problem is? Sin, absolutely. If you look over to the person at your left or right, you're going to see the problem. In fact, if you look down at your knees, you're going to see the problem. If you touch your own face, you're going to be touching the problem because every one of us are sinners. So all of us are in need of a mediator to stand between us and a holy God. The reason being is because God is holy. He cannot look upon sin, and we are full of sin. So we need someone to come between us to intervene on our behalf. Now, that makes sense, right? Yeah, it makes sense. 
Now, the other part of a, a, um, a mediator is that that mediator must have both parties' interests at heart. Uh, if, if you were, let's say you were being sued for something, and you have a lawyer there to defend you, and then as the person suing you walks in to the courtroom and looks over to your lawyer and says, Hey, Dad, how you doing? What would, what would we have there? Probably a mistrial. Because that lawyer will have a conflict of interest. He will favor one party more than the other, even though he's representing me. And we can't have that, so we need someone in the middle who can represent both parties uh, truthfully. We know that from reading scripture that Jesus was the same as God. He is God. Remember in in John, he says, um, I and the Father are one. That means that they think the same, they have the same goals, they have the same plans, they, they, have, they are one, along with the Holy Spirit. They, they form the Trinity. And because of that, the, the Pharisees sought to kill him, they picked up stones to, to kill him with. So we know that Jesus can intercede on the behalf of God on his end because he is of the same nature. He is God himself. However, how about our side of the equation? What do we know about us? Well, we're sinful. And uh, if you excuse me, I'll find some notes here. Uh, Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says that Christ understands our weakness and intercedes on our behalf. He understands because he was man. He was fully man, yet he was sinless. He obeyed the law perfectly. He lived a life of perfection. And he was our best representative. So when he stands before God interceding on our behalf, we know that he does it properly. All right, so we have a mediator. He stands between us because we have a problem with God. God has a problem with us. He knows both of us perfectly well. But another act of the mediator is to be able to communicate properly back and forth between the two. As I said, Jesus knows our weaknesses. Surely he is able to intercede on our behalf. He knows when we're tempted because he himself was tempted. He knows what it's like to be hungry because he was hungry. He knows what it's like to be persecuted, to be shamed, and everything else because he has participated in that, that same affliction that we had, uh, that we have when he was on earth. So we know full well that Jesus can speak for us. But the question comes is how does Christ speak the mind of God to us? How does he do that? We know how the information goes one way. How does it go the other? Well, some people would say Jesus speaks to me in my dreams. Others will say that uh, I had a burning in the bosom and I knew it was God speaking to me. You can get all kinds of stuff, especially if you watch certain channels on TV. You will hear all kinds of communication people are having with God. And uh, we have doubts about those. Because we know in these last days, he has spoken to us once and for all through the words of the prophets, through the words of the apostles. And it has been written down once and for all and given to us. Peter says that at one time God spoke in these many uh, manifest or various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us you know through his word through scripture so if christ is to complete his job as a mediator what do we need we need the word of god and there are many people around the world a lot of people around the world that have no 
scripture that God can speak to them with, that Christ can speak, communicate the mind of God to them with, that's going to be a problem. That means that no matter how much excitement you might be able to drum up on the mission field with a group of people, no matter how ecstatic they might feel about a religious experience, eventually it's going to fade because Christ cannot intercede for the Father to us if the Word is not present. We know that uh, Paul says, um, how should they hear unless someone is sent? How should they, you know, who's going to send them? But he says it's something very important. Unless they hear the word preached, how are they going to hear? Well, imagine if you're a pastor somewhere in the world and you've, you love this Christ that you've heard about. You want to tell your, your friends and so you've taken it upon yourself to tell them the story. And the only Bible that you have that you pick up is in a different language than the word that you, that you uh, speaks to your heart. Why do you think the errors are going to occur when someone who's reading a language that's not their first language is then trying to take that language and communicate it to a group of people that don't speak the language that's written down? Uh, things are going to get very, very confusing. It would be similar to me going back. There's a Bible on our table. Um, that is from the Gullah language. Now, most people have heard Gullah on TV. There used to be a show. I'm not sure if there still is. And you're in an area that uh, you might still hear it spoken. But imagine if I stood up here and spoke to you nonstop in Gullah. You might be humored because, you know, some of the words might sound funny. But chances are you would not have God speaking to your heart through the word of God because you just don't understand it. So that's why Bible translation is so important to the spread of the gospel. It cannot go on if, uh, if the people do not have words they can understand. And the nice thing is, here in this Presbyterian church, I know you already know that. If you're a deacon or an elder, raise your hand. Okay, hold it up so everyone can see who you are. Because I want to tell you that these have taken an oath to support me in Bible translation. Now, they're probably sitting there going, what's he talking about? <laughs> I don't remember. And I will remind you, this is the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, one of my favorite books because I too am Presbyterian. When we look in chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it starts out on the word of God, the best place to start, bedrock foundation. In section eight, it says something very interesting says this, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing, it was the most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them, but because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto them an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation until which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Those people who raise their hands have said, we will abide by the Westminster Confession of Faith as it explains what Scripture says to us. And right there it says that any time the Scripture goes out, it is mandatory 
that that scripture be translated into the common language of the people hearing it. Baby, I'm golden. I'm here representing Bible translation. There's no way you could turn me down. But the good news is you haven't. You've been supporting us for many, many years. And I, as I began to think about, now that I'm not on the front lines as a pilot, I used to be a pilot in Papua, Indonesia for 18 years, and uh, I would transport translators back and forth to their village, carry supplies, do medical emergency runs, uh, any number of things to make their job easier as they translate a scripture. Uh, as I began to think about that recently, you know, you know, everyone does that. What's my life been worth? What have, what, what have I done? Or is that just a man thing? Is that just a man thing? Yeah, it probably is. Maybe it's just a me thing. And I began to think, how do I measure what I've done? And the first thing, of course, being a pilot is we go, well, how many hours have you flown? Oh, or, or that's it. Hours flown. No, that's not really it. I mean, I flew 6,000 hours, which to an airline captain doesn't seem like much. However, an airline captain doesn't land every 15 minutes like I did. Uh, every mountain v- valley, I'd have to stop and do things. So, yeah, I, you know, I got that on the airline captain. And also, someone unloads his airplane. I have to unload my own. Someone else collects the money for the tickets. I had to do that. So, I, I worked. But still, that's not a very good way to measure the effectiveness of, of a ministry. And that's why I've been carrying around this this morning. Uh, this is a yardstick. You can pick one up at Lowe's if you want to. Uh, they're about 75 cents, I think. And um, I began to think, how do I measure the success of a ministry? More importantly, how do I measure your participation in my ministry? And this is what came to mind. We, we have a bookcase that is in the, the entrance to the JARS headquarters there in Waxhaw, North Carolina. It has rows and rows and rows of Bibles that have been translated. Now, for me, it's a very convenient source because back in the 90s, I had someone come up to me and they said, Glenn, you got a flight tomorrow and we want you to take these boxes into a place called Solmanente. Great, I'll do that. That's what I do. And I began to look at them, and it was like every box was the exact same shape. Every box was the exact same weight, and it had some printing on the side of it. And I said, what are these? What is this stuff? He said, those are the completed New Testament for the Barak language. And this is one right here. This is one that was given to me. That was important because this was the first Bible translated by Wycliffe Bible Translators on the island where I was working. There are now 275 known languages on the island, and this was the first translation that was completed by a couple named the Westrums. And I was just blown away. I had just gotten on the field a few months before, and now I'm delivering the first New Testament. I say that because that is a starting point. There were not many, many before, and uh, but I want to let you know that you're in on this. Now, when they... When I delivered this, they had a ceremony, and I remember they lined up the school children, and the school children read scripture from the Indonesian Bible, Bahasa Indonesia. And as you would imagine, since no one there really speaks Indonesian, kind of fell on deaf ears. But then the children began to read the same verses in uh, the Barak language, and people began to weep openly, because for the first time they were hearing the words of God in a language that spoke to their heart. 
And it was something that, that really transformed me and, and gave me a strong sense of purpose while I was there. But there's another one. There was a place that uh, is called Ombon. Some of you heard about this in, in Sunday school. And at that time, a fellow named Andrews was the translator there, and he'd been there for almost 18, 20 years. He'd been working for a long time, learning the language, reducing it to a written form, translating the scripture, and teaching that to the guys that were helping him to be the translation helpers. And um, I went in one day. I loved Andrew because he was he's from Texas, which... You got to like that. And because uh, he's as much redneck as I am, but he was a really hard worker. So when I would show up in the village, all the cargo was neatly stacked that needed to be flown out of the village. If there were passengers, he had the money collected and the tickets written. And when I opened up the doors of the airplane, he will help me unload the airplane, which, you know, you unload several hundred kilos of cargo all day long. Pretty soon you get real tired. So Andrew was always there helping. Right as we're unloading this stuff, Andrew kind of stops and he turns at me and he says, I'm finished. And I thought, no, you're not. There's, there's still junk that needs to get out of the airplane, still junk that needs to go in. And I told him that. He says, no, no, no. Last night, I finished the New Testament. And I was the first person, besides his wife, that he ever communicated that to. It began, now they'd been translating scripture for years and years and years, but now they had a completed New Testament, and, and this is it right here, the Captain Bond New Testament. Again, how much of a shot in the arm do you need to encourage you to, to live in a foreign country and, and do some weird stuff like we did than, than to hear that the work you've been doing is paying off? Well, the work didn't stop there. Uh, the Captain Bond people said, now we keep hearing about the New Testament, and we have one. What is this thing called the Old Testament? And now Wycliffe normally says we translate the New Testament, then we move on. So the Kettenbaum people themselves took it upon themselves to translate the Old Testament scriptures with Andrew's help. We would, we would assist them by setting up uh, a satellite telephone system where they could send emails back and forth from the village to the United States where Andrew was. Now, I remember there was a case where a guy was like, he was explaining to me in Kettenbond, which I don't speak. I only speak a few words, and I think some of those I probably shouldn't repeat in public, even if you don't understand them. But um, he was telling me something. I finally figured out the translation hut that they had was in the process of falling into the river, and they needed some money to, to shore it up so it didn't fall into the river. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to communicate this to Andrew, who's in the United States. And then I remembered, I had this... Remember the old Palm Pilot telephones? They're kind of big, clunky bricks. I had one of those. And I said, hold on for a second. And I, I got the voice recorder and I said, tell Andrew what you want to say. And he snapped his heels together and he started rattling off in Captain Bond. I went home, I took that off the phone, I emailed it to Andrew and he started listening to it. He responded back, I put it on my phone and I came back and played it for the guy. I acted as a mediator. I was not a very good one because I didn't understand the languages of either. But uh, it was amazing to see how excited these people were to make sure that the work continues, that they were willing to do all this. But a measure of, of our participation in the gospel. You've probably seen me hold this up front. Like I said, it's just an old yardstick. Is there anything unusual about this yardstick? 
is one side's blue. I put tape over it because I didn't want you to cheat and see what was on there. As I said, I looked at this, this case that had all these Bibles. And I thought, wow, that's, I've participated in every one of those Bible translations for Papua Indonesia. And I looked at the width of them and I thought, that's a pretty wide stack. So what I did was I measured them and I inscribed them on the back of this yardstick. Oh, now I've done it. We have before us two feet of translated Bibles. How many verses, I don't have Google on me right now, but how many verses does that uh, equal? Some of these are even greater than, than just the New Testament. The leaked New Testament is the Old Testament also. And so is the Ketanban. These are two Old Testament translations. So if you were to look at this, these are the Bibles that you have participated in translating. So when I talk to you about your investment in missions and what is the return on it, I wanted to give you something visible that you could see and remember in the future. And this is it. These are the Bibles that you helped translate as you supported me when I was overseas. But if you look very closely, this end has an arrow. Now, why is that? It's because even though these have been finished, there is still work to do. The words that are found in these different translations are continuing. Young children are learning these, these scriptures. Old people are finding comfort as they face their final days. Pastors are using the words found in all these representations here to preach the gospel, to give comfort to, their, to the people in their church. So even though these are finished, they are continuing. And in fact, uh, there, I think there's 14 of them on here. When I left, there were 14 translations that had been completed. When I got there, there were zero. 18 years later, 14 had come into being. But when I left, we were working on 64 different Bible translations. So the work that we began together is continuing with at least 64 more New Testaments. There will be at least 10 years down the road before some of these get completed because it takes about 20 years. So when you're thinking about your investment in missions and you go, why do we do this? We never see any return. Well, it's very similar to someone who comes up to you and says, you know, when I was in college, I had $1,000 and I invested it in a little company called Microsoft. And then you find out later, you're a multimillionaire. The same thing holds true here. Your small investments in prayer and support of your missionaries is going to pay long-term dividends toward the, the, um, the health of the Indonesian church and also the health of this church. Because I do pray that God blesses you for your participation. And I can say it's been a willing one, uh, a joyful one that we've had with you over the years. So the message continues. Uh, trying to find my phone. I was threatened that I can't go to 1044. I want to make sure I don't. It doesn't matter. Is it time to quit? <laughs> I must have lost it. No one else came up here, so I can't blame someone else. Oh, here it is. Here it is. There we go. Wow. I should have padded that one, right? But... Uh, 
yeah, the work continues. And it, now that I'm the deputy, excuse me, the, the international director of aviation safety, I don't use my title very much, so um, I forget what it is sometimes. It's kind of like, well, Glenn, how are you participating in Bible translation now? You're not flying people. Uh, well, the world has been changing quite rapidly in the world of aviation. It used to be you could take a missionary pilot who really knew his stuff and put him in a developing country, and he was seen as the expert. And no one bothered him. You know, if you want to go out into the jungle and fly, you go ahead and do that. We don't care. Just, you know. Well, now all that's changing. Um, now more and more countries are starting to say, look, if you're flying in our country, we want to make sure that you're qualified, that you're able, that you're contributing in a way that's positive to the country. So they begin to put more and more restrictions on our pilots and mechanics. They have to have more and more training. One area they have to have training in is this thing called a safety management system. Now, it's, it's probably boring to the layman. To me, it's very exciting because it's what I do. But to the rest of the world, it's pretty boring. We had a, a group that was in, I think it was last summer, and there were, I don't know, 40 people standing up front. That's the, the husband, the wife, and the kids that were all going out to many different parts of the world to, to work in aviation in the support of spreading the gospel. I enjoyed it that I looked at them and realized I had taught every one of them, and I had signed a certificate that they could then show at the entrance of the country saying, I have been trained in this. So the work is still continuing. I'm not as direct as they used to be. However, the people that do have hands-on wouldn't be there if we weren't able to contribute to their education in the area of safety. But more than that, we use safety to make sure that we only have to spend a dollar one time. Uh, we don't want to spend it twice with an accident. If we buy an airplane, we want the airplane to persist. We don't want to buy another one. So it's little things like that. It doesn't seem very spiritual, but all in all, it really helps the spread of the gospel go unhindered because we're making sure that the feet that do carry the gospel are not damaged and broken. Uh, that is our job. Let's stand for the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you grace this day and forevermore.